how do you want to be referred to? Is a tanker officer, infantry officer? Armor officer. All right, uh, thank you for joining us today on Longest War. On this episode, we have Aaron Scheinberg, former Army Armor. Oh, that's going to be a... This Army officer, I guess. Aaron Army Army officer. Yeah. Uh, thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. Today, we talk to Aaron Scheinberg, West Point loser. How's that? <laughs> At the peanut gallery in the background. All right, Aaron, thanks for joining us today. So you were an armor officer. Uh, you went to West Point in 1999. What motivated you to go to West Point and join the Army? Uh, that's a great question. So, I mean, things were, were different at the times before 9-11, but uh, service at the time was always part of my family. My grandfather, both grandfathers were in the Army, one served in World War II as a combat engineer, and then the other during uh, Korea. He was uh, a signal officer, and my parents were both public school teachers. So growing up, you know, service to our community, service to country was always present. And uh, I was an athlete in high school, so you know, I enjoyed competition and and being pushed, you know, and building both the mind and the body. And when I started looking into schools. You know, the military academies were top of mind for, you know, the service, for the adventure side, for being challenged. And then I got a letter in the mail from the track coach uh, at Army to come up to do a visit. And to be honest, I didn't really know what West Point was about until that visit. And I fell in love with it. Uh, Just saw the cadets, heard what they were about, what the values are uh, at West Point, you know, duty, honor, and country. And I was sold, so it was my first choice, and I just did whatever it... This was sophomore year, because you have to apply so early in your high school career, and uh, I just made it happen after that. So you applied as a sophomore. How long until you got, like, I don't like the official acceptance letter? I was one of the first to get accepted in New Jersey, so this was during... Does it go by state? Yeah, so each state... I'm not 100% sure how it works, but each state basically gets an allotment. I'm not sure how they... Based on population, I'd imagine. Yeah, exactly. So each state is represented, which is cool. You get to go to a school that the whole country is represented. So you have to go through a rigorous process just for academic applications. You'd have a congressional recommendation too, right? Yeah, then you have to go through a whole congressional nomination. So I met with uh, some folks in New Jersey, like Senator Lautenberg. And then I grew up for a little bit of my life in West Virginia, so I met with Senator Rockefeller, and I finally got a nomination from New Jersey. And uh, then you have to take a physical fitness test where you have to get on your knees and throw a basketball across the gym. You got to do like, you know, a shuffle across the court. Like weird officer stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stuff you do in the Army. You know, that's really important. All right, like throw basketballs. <laughs> and then you have to go through the whole medical screening. And that, that dings a lot of people, too. You know, you'd be surprised. Certain things come up and you have to get a waiver or, or not. So sure. luckily I passed all of that and I was accepted and went so to So when West. did you find out? Like what year were you in? I think, so all of that goes through your junior year. And then it was you know, early on senior year that I, that I got, that I was accepted. So you found out where you were going long before most of your peers did, right? Like they're still waiting in like April, May to get yeah, acceptance right, letters. But exactly. you, were, you, were, you could pretty much just coast senior year yeah. knowing you were good. Well, that's uh, not that's a bad position. Be a, yeah, that's got to be a benefit. Yeah, so if you want to coast senior year, apply to West Point. Because that'll be the last coasting you do for a while. <laughs> yeah. So your family's Jewish. 
That's your grandpa true. that served in World War II, like where he was in Europe, the, yeah. the engineer. Yeah, my grandfather on my dad's side, he was a combat engineer and he deployed to France and Germany. Um, he liberated concentration camps. One interesting story, actually, he was wounded briefly. So he was uh, in a town in, in France and at the time he, he wore glasses and they had these really thick like metal glass cases and they're like really robust and he had it in his chest pocket, left chest pocket. And he was in this town and a grenade went off right by him. And one of his friends was badly injured, but the shrapnel from the grenade hit my grandfather and the glass case protected him. It stopped the shrapnel from entering his chest. He gave that glass case to my father when he, you know, later on. And then when I got to West Point, my father gave me that glass case. Oh, that's a really cool, like, family heirloom. Yeah. And when I eventually went to Iraq, I kept that glass case on me. I put it in my BDU pocket, my my chest pocket, an entire year. You never took shrapnel in it, did you? No. Because that would have been some wild <laughs> shit. That's right. real, man. That would have been yeah. crazy. We should put that in a museum if that's the case. So did your, and your other grandfather was in Korea? My other grandfather, he was born in China. His family was Russian. They were Russian Jews, and they moved to uh, China kind of during the Russian Revolution. And there was, there was a small Jewish population and then finally immigrated to the United States. And he joined the army. This was after World War II, and uh, he was a signal guy. Uh, he, d- he never deployed to Korea. He was just deployed Korean to era. Germany, I think, you know, in the aftermath of World War II. So, like, growing up, did they... Did your grandfathers talk to you a lot about uh, their military experience? Not really. Like that, you know, that generation just, they didn't talk too much about the service or the time, the details of stories of the ser- of deployments sure. or the service, but it was ever present. Like you knew about their service. You knew that they were in the military. Yeah, they didn't hide or anything, but it wasn't something they just really, they didn't lead with that right. in conversation. And it wasn't as unique as it is today. You sure. know, only 1% back sure. then. Sure, like everybody, basically. Yeah. And it was how they acted and what they did in life afterwards. Like, my grandfather worked for the USDA. You know, he continued to serve the country. He founded the first Boy Scouts for handicapped people. Oh, that's really cool. In D.C. And so he was constantly involved in the community. Were either of them still alive when you went to West Point? My grandfather, my dad's side, was still alive. I got to talk to him on the phone when I was accepted, and it was obviously one of the coolest moments of my life. Sure. You know, he was very proud, and it was a very cool moment. Did he open up anymore with you? Like, after, like, now, like, you're both in, right? So did that create any kind of room for more nuanced conversation? A little bit. He was towards the end of his life at the time. Um, so we didn't have any really detailed conversation, but he would give me tips on how to navigate the army, you know, like, uh, don't volunteer <laughs> for anything. Age old advice yeah. that like is still relevant. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. Keep so, your head down. So your grandparents served, your dad didn't serve obviously. And then you served. What was your parents' response? Uh, right. I mean, obviously kids going to West Point, right? Not only is it free, which is awesome, but it's like basically Ivy League. It's world-class education. So I'm sure they're jazzed up about that, but like how jazzed up were they about, because this is 99, well, yeah, 99, they didn't know. Yeah, it was different. 
So my parents were very supportive. They were surprised at first. They they never encouraged me to go into the military. They encouraged me to live a life of purpose, though. So when I and they knew that I was driven and I needed a challenge. You know, I was a really rambunctious kid, like a lot of guys that a lot of men and women that joined the military are. And I, you know, I needed uh, big challenges to uh, keep me in, you know, straight. And uh, they knew that this would be a great path for me, so they were fully supportive. But there weren't many Jews, you know, of, of my generation who, you know, was served. I didn't know any. I could count on one hand all the Jewish <laughs> guys I served with. Yeah, there there aren't a ton because there's only one percent of the population is Jewish, and then one percent of one percent. It's a small so group small. to pull from. Yeah, yeah. So then, two thousand. You graduated two thousand two. Two thousand three. Two thousand three. What was it like at West Point? If you could break it up, because it was right around your mid your midpoint of school, right? It's September 11th. So what was the climate there pre-9-11 versus post-9-11? Interesting story. So when you, and you're at West Point, your junior year, the second week of school, if you leave West Point prior to that, you don't owe the government anything. You could leave and they'll say, you know, it didn't work out. Thank you for trying. We're not going to make you pay for for and you can what, keep the credits. Yeah, you can keep the credits. We're not going to send you into the military, you know, as an E4 or anything like that until the second week of school of your junior year. And then you sign the papers that you're signing your life away. And the next two years you have to complete at West Point, and the next five years of serve active duty at least, and the next three after that reserves. Um, Before we go on, I just kind of want to hit on that. So, were there people that were kind of like voluntold, like, hey, maybe this isn't the thing for you? Did, did Kadri give that kind of feedback? Like, this ain't working, man. Don't, don't keep pushing yourself through this. It's not going to work out. It happens. We st- my class started with about 1,200 people, and we ended up in the 800s for graduation. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a huge attrition rate. At the time, they had big attrition rate. I think it was one of the largest since like the 50s or 60s percentage-wise. You think some of that was a product of going into 99 and then all of a sudden like, wow, shit's got real. All of a sudden we're going to, because we were boots on ground in Afghanistan in October of 01. So they, I mean, they knew deployments were coming, right? Actually, I think it was the opposite. I think people left prior to 9-11 because it just wasn't their thing, because they failed out, because, you know, they just went for the wrong reasons. But then... When 9-11 happened, it focused everyone in more, in the same direction. And you did not want to leave at that point because yeah. you were part of something bigger and important and you felt the duty to serve. Did you ever think, because you ended up going to Iraq in 03, right? So like, but for two years, like it was all about Afghanistan. Like Afghanistan was the yeah. only place we were deployed. Like when you graduated from West Point, were you pretty sure you were going to Afghanistan? No, actually. In fact, my first job for the army for the first six months was a football coach for West Point. Oh, really? I was a grad assistant football coach. And are you one of the reasons that we, we didn't win for, what was it? 22 years, whatever. I actually, Kevin's I was a Navy guy. Hey. So <laughs> there's many reasons for that. Thank God we won this year. Um, <sighs> yes, I was, I was managing the sprint football team, which is a bunch of lightweight. It's guys. smaller guys, right? Yeah. It's like the, the quick Zach, Yeah. Better football team. We were champ, national champions that that year. But back to the the story about before 9-11. So we signed our contract as a class, like September 7th or something like that. We signed our life away, and then four days later, 9-11 happened. 
it was crazy. They locked down just like every other base. We were locked down for a couple weeks. Many of us wanted to go down besides going to Afghanistan, which you all wanted to do. Many of us wanted to go down to ground zero and help out. In fact, a lot how far of, is the city from West Point? It's like 30 miles. It's, it's not far as the crow flies. And um, we had a lot of staff. My, one of our football coaches was NYPD, and he went down. He was a first responder. So the stories just kept coming, coming back. And it really, just like the country, it made everything seem really serious and important. And our work was shining a different light. And so all the hazing that you went through, some of the stupid stuff just disappeared. And we were really focused on what really mattered, which was preparing for combat, preparing for war. So, you know, that year things got real, just like anyone in the military at the time. And then as the first year of Afghanistan went by, you know, we had West Point graduates who were wounded or killed you know, in combat. And that, that instantly makes it, you know, even more because you realize that could be you in a couple of years. Were any of them uh, like guys that had been like senior classmen while you like when you were freshmen? Were, did you know any of them even like abstractly like that they were in the same four year grouping? Yeah. Once I became a senior, which they call firsties at West Point, you, you knew most most of the people, you know, class that, that had deployed. And uh, yeah, it was a very different time before and after. What did your parents think? So when I got into West Point, they weren't as worried. You know, the worst thing that we could, I could have gone to at the time was Bosnia or Kosovo and, or Somalia. And then, you know, once 9-11 happened, they got really worried that I would be deployed. There was, you know, just like anything in the military, there was rumors floating around. They're going to graduate our class early, like the World War II class. We're going to be sent to Afghanistan. Like, let's get ready. Like, they're going to give us weapons to... You know, from the arms room to protect the... You got all these barracks lawyers telling all these yeah, lies. Yeah. yeah, people are just believing it because right. they don't know any better. Yeah. yeah. Before, <laughs> you know, the internet was as big too. Yeah, that's crazy to think about. Like, I, it's... Because I was like... I'm a few years younger than you. I was like 16 when 9-11 happened. Man, it, it seems like it was yesterday, right? Like, because it's such a fresh memory. I guess it's like when older people talk about, like, where they were when JFK was killed. Like, mm-hmm. it's something that they can put themselves right back in that moment. I can tell you what seat I was sitting in and what classroom when somebody flung the door open and came in there. They were like, turn the TV on. Like, yeah. places are getting bombed. And to think that, like, that was almost pre-internet, man. Like, that's yeah. crazy to me. I remember, like, getting home and, like, putting a cassette tape in and recording some of the news, right? But it feels like it was 15 minutes ago. Yeah, I know. But it was so, God, was that 17 years now, almost? It's weird how quickly time goes by. Particularly... Because you can group your life into like your military life and then your civilian life. And man, military life just flew by. Oh, yeah. Uh, those eight years were, were gone, the blink of an eye. Civilian life s- slowed down a little bit, which is nice. I'd like to enjoy it a bit more. Yeah, it's nice to have some periods of slowdowns. I mean, that the op tempo is just was 9-11 launched our generation to a totally different world. You know, Yeah, and we weren't military. ready yet either. Like the Army War too. It's like, all right, we got a few years to figure this out, build up troop levels. Like 9-11, I mean, it was completely unexpected. So the ramp up had to go during deployments. And as a result of that, that's why you hear these stories about guys going six, seven times, because there weren't the bodies to, to, to backfill. Like there was no draft, obviously. Like, it was all volunteer. We were still shooting at Ivan 
when you know the, right the, no. <laughs> back in the, in oh one all the like there was all the manuals tell how this cold war era jargon in it uh yeah, yeah the, the drill sergeants would make comments about ruskies and stuff so we spoke with a guy recently uh, and he was a basic training during 9-11 and they knew something happened they didn't know exactly what happened the drill sergeants kind of they didn't want that to like seep through into the training what was it like at west point Did, i mean were they forthcoming with information and think kind of intelligence you're dealing with the same army that you know west point as you are anywhere else so no um and they you know as a cadet they don't they don't really tell you anything they, you might be the last people to know about you know operational information that being said you're surrounded by um officers uh professors some experts in military science you know generals and colonels that you know know how the army works and may you know hear about what is happening so you're exposed to thinking about what the next steps are like what what should happen and and even studying it that's interesting that would be a very cool maybe not for most people but like for guys like us like that's to be around a historical moment like that surrounded by guys that are like literally subject matter experts on you know, they have all been in the war college. Like these are, these guys know conflict, right? And just to, that's the breadth of knowledge that they have they can share. Uh, and really, I don't know if it would be helpful or scary though, because they can give you a, like a real world kind of lens on how this stuff's going to play out. But man, that, that'd be a really cool place to be actually. Did any of your professors like focus on that kind of stuff? Like, yeah. So, you know, everyone knows their 9-11 story and I was going into a sociology class, so they call it. And I was watching the the news, you know, and on CNN, and we put it on in the classroom, and we were all just sitting there in silence. And my social professor, I think it was a major, uh, he said he took us all outside. Remember, it was really beautiful that day, and we walked past, you know, statues of MacArthur and Patton, and then the West Point Honor Code Pavilion, and then we went along the river, and we were looking down the Hudson towards, you know, where we could we thought we could see the smoke coming up. Uh, from Ground Zero, and you know, he just talked about what this moment means for us and for for what how it would change our future. And he said, "This day will change the rest of your lives. We are going to be at war now." He said, "We are a country at war. We're an army at war, and you're going to be leading the soldiers, the men and women that that are going to be be sent over to wherever you know, Afghanistan." That's kind of awesome. Yeah. Because I'm sure he was one of like the, the 200 people in the world that knew who Osama bin Laden was, knew what Al-Qaeda was, like knew, like as it's happening, he's putting pieces together. Like that's, uh, I mean, it's a horrible thing to happen, right? Like we all agree on that, but man, that's a cool place to be when it happens. Probably have to edit that out because it sounds real shitty to a <laughs> lot of people, I think. They were, we were trying to figure out what is next, you know? Which that's got to be a weird experience for them too, because most of them... I would imagine weren't combat vets because we had a relatively low period and now all of a sudden shit's real for them and they look around literally at children, right? Like 18, 19, 20 year old kids. And now it's like, what do I have to do to get these men and women ready to go to combat? Something they'd never been faced with before. Man, that, that gives me a panic attack almost thinking about like the, the responsibility you have trying to prepare school kids to go to war. The, the weight of that responsibility was clear like it was heavy on all of us we knew that at that moment and but there were as you said there was 
maybe four or five officers on the whole base they had a combat patch on the right side of there from like kosovo you know, or something right from Kosovo, yeah or somalia it's crazy let's let's fast forward to oh was oh five oh three oh five oh five yeah so oh five you deployed to iraq with fourth infantry division you went to you were an armor officer by mm-hmm. trade that's the school you went to yeah but you ended up as an infantry platoon leader in iraq correct yeah so a platoon leader and infantry company, here's what happened. The second brigade of 4th ID is experimental brigade. So you got all the cool new equipment. We had the best tanks. You know, I trained on tanks for two years after West Point, getting ready to deploy. And then they, they switched up um, the unit makeup to this, what are they called, the units of action, where you know one battalion could deploy and have all the resources that it's, they have tanks and you got infantry. So I was cross-attached to an infantry battalion, and then that battalion commander had the foresight of saying, we need our combat officers to intermingle within the companies so that they're understanding each other even more. Then I was cross-attached to an infantry company. I was leading a platoon in an infantry company in Iraq. And in reality... Did you take the tanks with you? No. Well, the tanks were... Yes, we took the tanks with us to Iraq. But we just left them on the base. We took them out maybe twice the whole time. And then... You Were know, you in the first wave to go over? No, this is the 0507. Oh, okay, 0507. 05. But the guys that I was leading, many of them were in the first wave. Okay. So, you know, it, it was hard being, a, at first, a 23-year-old platoon leader leading combat veterans into combat in an infantry company, which I came in as a tanker. But, you know, once you're on the ground, that's where your experience starts. And we were all in Humvees. We were all on the ground there. Geographically in Iraq, where were you at? And then what was Platoon's mission there? We were south of Baghdad, the southern point of the Triangle of Death. So Mahmoudia, a lot of Fia was our northern boundary. And the cities where we operated the most was in Iskandaria and Haswa. So it was the area where the Sunni-Shia fault line lied. So half our cities were Shia and half were Sunni. In the first half, the first three months of the deployment, it was very much a kinetic fight, as you, know, you call it. It was combat. It was getting the bad guys off the street. It was clearing the way for development in the future. We were doing raids every night. We were doing targeting, air assaults. You know, most stuff was at night. And then during the day, we would be learning, building relationships. Uh, I spoke Arabic. I studied Arabic at West Point. So those first three months during the days, I would be building relationships with people, helping to train the Iraqi army. And soon, you know, I'm I'm guessing you were like the brigade commander's favorite junior officer because you spoke Arabic. You know, when you speak Arabic in Iraq, you become the Iraqi's favorite officer. And not every brigade commander likes that because they like to be the favorite. Sure. You don't want to. So that was interesting. But every time I would show up, to one of the army bases or the police bases, they'd be like, Haroun Rashid. Like I was their, their savior because I spoke Arabic uh, and they just loved it. And then anytime another officer would meet with them, they'd be like, where's Haroun? We want to speak with Haroun. So did you guys, did your platoon have a terp since you spoke Arabic? Did you need one? Yeah, there's certain things like, you know, business terms. And I wasn't as fluent when I first started as I was at the end of the year. I mean, it's always good if you do split ops. We would split the platoon. You know, you have Alpha and Bravo team. I would take 
just I would be the interpreter for the alpha team and then the Bravo team would have the other interpreter. So it allowed us some flexibility. So the first three months, it was all kinetic. And then we went into the hearts and minds battle. And it was mostly building the town councils and setting up the political leadership, local political leadership, and building relationships with the sheikhs and the imams. And so there was a, you said there's a pretty, like, even Sunni Shia split. Like, mm-hmm. how difficult was that? to bring those sides to the table. Because, I mean, there's been sectarian Sunni Shia violence like that long predates our involvement in Iraq and will continue on long after we're gone. Like, so on top of, you know, speaking the language, like doing the job of an interpreter, doing the job of a platoon leader, like you've also got to play like a politician type role and like yeah. broker agreements with these folks. Like that's, it seems like a lot of weight constantly on your shoulders. Like how, oh, yeah. how difficult was that you're getting two sides to come and sit down and talk to each other. So once we built rapport and trust within the, the community, so we would be, just go and listen to their, their needs and respond to it. I think we were way too kinetic at first. We, were, we would piss more people off than we would gain trust by raiding homes on sometimes bad intelligence sure. in the middle of the night and dealing with, you know, mothers and baby screaming you know that that didn't really help sure we got some of the the guys who laid the ieds or fought for muqtada al-sadr against us at, off the street but when we saw that didn't help you know, we lost a lot of guys in the beginning right those are small victories yeah we that's when we were losing guys way more than we did later on when we smart we smartened up and uh, once we started going off of that a little bit and being more of like a cop and and uh, civil affairs and political, they started trusting us and saw that that we're there to help them, not to kill them. And right. it's uh, like uh, like stateside, like the difference between like a normal police department, mm-hmm. it's you know kicking in doors and versus community policing, right? Yeah. Like so, there's I mean, there's something to be said for that model of let's not shoot first, you know, let's ask the questions first, shoot later. Like that really is what worked in Iraq for us. Like that's, that's how we got to the point. I mean, it all fell to shit after we left anyway, but Mm -hmm. that's how we got to the point where we felt like we could leave is because it became less, we became much less combative. Don't you think? Oh yeah. I mean, I think that's why you see a lot of veterans speaking out about some of the, you know, police violence. Cause we had our own rules of engagement and we, we've learned the the hard way. Let me ask you about that. That's that's something I've, I've wanted to get into with some people. So when you see like a police officer, so like from our training, right? You're trained, you can't just shoot because you feel threatened, right? Like CID doesn't want to hear that when they arrest you, right? Mm-hmm. They, oh, I thought maybe he had a weapon, so I shot him. When we were downrange, if we were just shot someone, shot and killed some random person walking on the street, turns out they didn't have a weapon or whatever, like, but we'd be in jail, man. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like we would be in Leavenworth right now. I did investigations as an officer. You you know, you rotate that. Right. I had to do that every like, time we shot someone. There's something to be said for the training that we went through that maybe that, I mean, that's a difference maker, right? Like the training, if if we were to have the sort of training we went through back home here, maybe we could avoid a lot of those problems. Because we, we shot how many thousands of rounds at the range before you ever got on the plane, right? I, I mean, I know the police, they're training too. It, I, it's whatever, and I'm not a police expert, and I we should be protecting police if they are face a legitimate threat then of course like just like the military shoot but when we concentrate so much in the military on the rules of engagement and because we know that the values that we have and how we 
are perceived by others as a force that you know comes in from another country is of, of the utmost importance so we spend sure. so much time on rules engage engagement and you know perhaps the police don't do that as much and their rules of engagement seem to be different at times yeah i feel like i just feel like it was so much stricter for us yeah. um which is weird it's really right. weird to think about it like that we, we have str more stringent rules in iraq and afghanistan than we do in baltimore or dc yeah all right so you were you were platoon leader your whole tour wasn't with that platoon right no so i spent eight months with the platoon you know when i was with them before and train up too and you know, I was very, very lucky. I was one of the only platoon leaders not to have, not to lose a guy, you know, or to have major wounds. We were hit a bunch too. We just got very lucky. Like my vehicle itself was hit 11 times. Did people like not want to ride in your truck anymore? Like after like the ninth one? I Probably not. I think my gunner was like, you know, do we really have to be the first <laughs> every time? I, you know, you, you choose where you are in the, in the convoy. Yeah. And the the statistics show that the first car is that got hit way more. That's than the, the point, other. man. Yeah, all yeah. the pressure plates. Like right. it's all the pressure plates. <laughs> so I just I couldn't put someone else in that position as a platoon leader. So I put, and your gunners up there like, no, sir, you can really. Yeah. You can put your driver too, sir. Just. I think I think my gunner did say at one point like, can we just please be like fourth at something. <laughs> um, you weren't having that. Yeah. So, yeah, did that for eight months, and then a new patiner came on, and we were lucky to have a left seat, right seat ride with him. And then I was ready to go off, you know, and work the talk or whatever, you know, former platoon leaders do. And then my battalion commander said, you know, you're not done. We need you out in the field doing this civil affairs stuff. And I'm like, nah, I don't want to do civil affairs. I don't even know what that is. You know, I'm the combat guy, and I just want to help the units on the ground and he said well this is the most important thing right now and you speak arabic and we need someone who could figure this out and typical civil affairs officers get trained for years for me they sent me to baghdad for a week and i learned what it means to be a civil affairs officer and uh, became the s9 for the battalion and at the time we had we shifted from the kinetic to the hearts and minds and we started spending a lot of money and we needed more civil affairs officers so they started taking captains and turning them into him and that's what i became and part of your responsibility was like paying the contractors for infrastructure any kind of work they were doing like either on the fob or in the towns and stuff right yeah it was it was a pretty amazing job so first of all you could you would do a needs assessment of the community you would be working with the community leaders to figure out what are the needs? You had nine essential services you were looking at, you know, medical, education, health, sewage, electricity, you know, gas, a couple others that I forget at the moment. And then when the commanders of the units said, hey, we want to do this project, like dredge the canals, we would go in, we would design the project, we would hire the contractors, we would put out the bid, and then we would pay them when the job was done. And like, did they take checks? All cash. All cash. So I spent $10 million in cash, often in briefcases, in bags, and random deliveries, or they would come to us. Like drug money? Yeah. What was, do you remember what like the biggest single payment that you made anybody was? I think we had like a $100,000 project, one of the electricity projects. Um, you know, but it's, it's in... Do, they, do you make them come to you for the payment or do you go to them? 
in the beginning, when I, I was just figuring this out. Like, <laughs> like, so they didn't give you an SOP? Like, don't go into Baghdad with 100000 in your briefcase? Well, I would go to this random wooden shack on our base that we built that was like the finance office. And then I'd be like, hey, I need $50,000. And then this this lieutenant, you know, whose only job is to manage the money, would be like, all right, we'll come sign it out tomorrow. And I'd be like, all right, here's where I'm going. And then they would give me the bag of cash. And then you signed for it, right? Just mm-hmm. like anything in a property book, you signed for it. Yeah. Were you ever worried that you'd give the contractor and they'd come be like, yeah, this dude never gave me my money? Oh, they tried every trick in the book. Every trick in the book. The interpreters sometimes were in on it too. You had to be careful. We had contractors try to win bids by offering us prostitutes, drugs, alcohol, pretty much anything. And some of there were some officers that got in trouble for it because they actually did it. There were some officers that would... They would smuggle home some of this cash. They got caught. Um, not that I know, but it was they were major scandals. Oh, sure. Yeah. So in the beginning, they were a little bit looser with the rules. And so I would go out with some of the commanders and have the money. And then, the, of course, the commanders like to give the money themselves. So it was a nice presentation. Well, that's good for you, too, because like you got a colonel that can verify that that money was handed mm-hmm. off. So you don't have to worry about that. And then I think we realized that we were in a very vulnerable position because word got out that, you know, we're carrying money or word got out that we were going to have these meetings. And then so we built a um, basically a, a welcome center on our FOB that it was only designed for contractors to come in where we would vet them. You know, it was pretty heavily guarded. Right. But, you know, because a lot of people don't realize, like, in Iraq and Afghanistan, on top of like the insurgency group, there's like organized crime there, right? Like, so oh, yeah. like, they find out these big cash transactions are taking place. And you've got basically like the Iraqi mafia, you know, ambushing convoys to get this money. Like, it's, it's like the Wild West. We had one contract where we had to build a fence along the highway. I mean, think about the US where there's infrastructure along the hi- highways, you got blockades and road guards and lights and all that. When we invaded Iraq, because it was all metal, all that stuff was just taken by people to be sold for scrap metal. So they're going to have like a locust coming in. They took yeah. everything. So we had to rebuild some of that infrastructure. I put a project together that one of the commanders wanted in our brigade to build this fence. And so I hired, this is a big project. You need like 80 people. And uh, I went through just a contracting process like you would here. We picked a contractor that was the best that came in, you know, at decent price. Well, whoever his competitor was didn't like that and ended up killing half the guys that he hired. It was a pretty low moment for us. That's nasty. Yeah. Did you have to like personally oversee like the construction to like make sure they were staying on timeline, stuff like that? Oh, yeah. Did they ever pull the inshallah? Shit with you? All the time. (laughs) If you think contractors in the U.S. are hard, imagine contractors in Iraq. My second tour, I had to oversee some local national workers. And so I was like, all right, guys, 8 o'clock tomorrow. I'll see you. And the first time I heard it, it was like, inshallah. And I was like, what does that mean? He goes, it means if God wills it, he'll be here at 8 o'clock. Otherwise, he'll be here whenever he's getting I was like, yeah. that's, that's bullshit, man. That is, not a, that is not a legitimate excuse to not show yeah. up. So they had excuses quite often. And you didn't know if it was legitimate or not because it seemed plausible <laughs> Uh, you know, I couldn't get <laughs> but to the road. But they almost never were legitimate, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't get to the road because uh, they're blocked off by U.S. soldiers. That seems legitimate, but it also could be an excuse. Right. Like, uh, or my brother was killed and I had to go, you know, who knows? 
Um, it's but, like being with like a bunch of college kids and like, you know, their grandma dies nine times over the course right, of a school yeah. year. I mean, so we would go out, we inspect. The, the one thing we did have over them is that civil affairs would go out and find the most important projects, but the commanders would still hold it over the local leaders. So the, these would be wins for the local leaders. That's how like we local, would, like elected officials or government officials or well, military the, the commanders. Sheikhs, yeah, and there were you know we had we set up some political systems too, like you know local town councils who were mostly made up of sheikhs too, and the police were involved with that. And so if they could promise a win, like you're going to have a water purification unit in this area of the town, then you know every and everyone's going to benefit. Then they're going to be looked at positively. So they had skin in the game to make sure that the contractors did what they said. So they could be the whip cracker. Yeah, but that's nice. Yeah, but sometimes those shakes were killed too. Yeah. So you did that. It was four months. Yeah. And did you ever like get your? Do you feel like get your legs under you at some point? You're like, oh, I'm doing pretty all right. Did you like it? I didn't want to do civil affairs, and then I loved it. I fell in love with it because, uh, you know, we were going out and we were armed. I mean, we got into some firefights as civil affairs team, but mostly you were solving problems. Yeah. And you were responding to the needs of the community and you were learning how to build stuff. Very rewarding. So what's your title with Michigan Tenues now? I'm the executive director for the Northeast. Executive director for Northeast. So how did your, so, okay, I guess to explain very briefly what the Michigan Tenues does at like an operational, like platoon level. Sure. And like how your experience in civil affairs kind of prepared you for that role. I'll start with civil affairs to explain the Michigan Tenues. And we have, my story is, you know, one of many. And so there are millions of veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan that have, have been involved in community development, that have been involved in civil affairs type work, whether you wanted to do it or not, we all did it. And we we know how to do it. And then when we come home here, I mean, we were basically like mayors of towns in, sure. in Iraq and Afghanistan. And when we come back here and looking for jobs and we have to start all over again, you know, it's hard in itself. But then you're in, in roles that are not very rewarding. You're not using those skills that you gained at such a young age. You're not out there actively working in the community and you don't have a sense of purpose. And I was, I felt that way too. I was lucky I had gone to two great graduate schools and had a good job in management consulting, but I felt like I was not, I was being underutilized. I felt like I was, that all that stuff I learned in Iraq was for naught. And we have so many problems in our country that we can solve using those same approaches. And then when I, f I knew that I couldn't and I needed to do something different, I saw this organization called The Mission Continues was looking to grow. And they believe that same thing, that veterans need to continue to serve and need to put those skills to use here at home. And they created a pathway to do it. And that was, for me, five years ago. Back then, we had one program called The Fellowship Program, where we place veterans into nonprofits, serving in nonprofits for six months. That still exists, and we're, we're continuing to expand. And then we knew we wanted to scale this to get more veterans out there in the community using their skills, um, and we created a program called Service Platoons. So these are teams of veterans working together to do needs assessment in the communities where they're working, and then figure out what to get done. What do the community want? How are we going to do it? Like, that's what we do best. And so it's kind of like a um, like a permanent neighborhood, like Team Rubicon type setup, right? Like, 
It's like a group of guys, but they don't just come in when there's a disaster. Like they're there in that neighborhood, like regularly doing things to community building activities, right? Yeah, we have slow moving disasters all over the country. Some of our biggest, yeah, some of our you know biggest needs, you know, disasters are important. Absolutely, going overseas and helping poor countries are important. But we have some serious challenges here in our own country, and we also are, have lost the social fabric, the civic you know, efficacy, like I call it, the ability to come together as a community to get things done, you know, not waiting for someone else to do it. And the veterans have have done that. We've been at the forefront of that. And we have those values, those ethics, ethos rather. So I think if we have more veterans, like we have every veteran who served out in their community, get bringing people together, showing it what it means to solve problems, to be pragmatic, to not worry about, you know, which side you're on, but to actually get things done. And I think that would go a long way. Yeah, that raises an interesting point. Like, and you hear this going back from like many generations of veterans. Like we had a, at one of our breakfast events, uh, I believe it was one of the World War II vets told Todd, he was like, the best thing about being in Europe World War II was like, it didn't fucking matter if the guy next to you was a Democrat or Republican. Yeah. Like no one cared. Like we were just, we were a team. No one ever focused on the differences. It was always on like the commonalities. Yeah. And I think that's, um, particularly now, that's an important thing for the country, right? Is to have, and veterans are kind of uniquely qualified in this climate to to have these conversations, to do these things and like kind of to lead the way of like how to be civil, disagree, work together, love each other. So yeah. it's, it's really cool organizations doing cool work right now. Yeah. And as a little plug, family plug. I get to work with your wife doing this work too. She's running. That's in the, that's in the downside column, right? <laughs> uh, no, she's amazing. And, you know, she's seen Stephanie Grimes. She's seen the work that we've done as veterans. And she's put into work here in Pittsburgh. So we have three service platoons here in Pittsburgh and then one in Philly that she's running. So you've got two active in Pitt. One is getting stood up. What's the focus of that third one going to be? We're, so we're still doing our, we're in our needs assessment phase, but some of the cool things that we found are focused around the immigrant population, the refugee population. And we've learned a lot that um, there's a large immigrant refugee population here in the South Hills of Pittsburgh. And uh, of course they have lots of needs, but they want to get involved to serve too. They want to show that they're Americans and community members and, you know, they want to show their great civic uh, exhilaration. And so we're going to ch- figure out how to get that done. It's very cool. If uh, somebody wants to know more about Mixed Digits or how to get involved in their city, how do they go about finding that info? If you're a veteran, go on our website, uh, www.missioncontinues.org and sign up for service platoon or sign up for the next fellowship class. If you know a veteran, tell them to do that. If you're not a veteran, you can also sign up for one of the service platoons you can be a member and you can come out and serve side by side with veterans. We've got 40 something platoons right now. We're going to have 70 by the end of the year, basically in every major city. And every platoon's got quite a few civilian platoon members, right? Like no military experience to just like being part of the team. Yeah, they want to serve. They want to be part of this movement. It's, it's all led by veterans, but we have non-veterans, military family members that are becoming a really essential part of this. They're helping us plan. They're helping us get access to uh, networks, to people that are important. You know, we're not going to invent the wheel when we go in 
to these uh, to our neighborhoods to to do work. We're going to be working with people already doing it, and we're going to be bringing the muscle and the energy and the leadership and the enthusiasm. So join us if you're civilian, and if you don't want to join the service platoon, we are a nonprofit, so we need all the dollars we can get to sustain our work. There's a donate button on the MichiganContinues.org. Aaron, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate having you. Oh God, I'm so bad at these, man. Yeah, me too. It was it was fun. <laughs> I'm not convinced. That was convincing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's try it again. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, it's been episode, I don't know. Aaron, hey, thanks for joining us today, Aaron. <laughs> Nick, you're welcome. <laughs> let's just end it like that for real. All right. <laughs> I usually do. Yeah. With my hands on your face, you blink, I move, you talk, I shake, and I know where I stand because I'm all with this ground. And your blood's on my hands And my blood is on yours But there are no wounds I'll take the place of your mistake I'll wake the day before it fades I'll shake away my demon's face Make the place alive